due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Remember, in espionage, there's no such thing as a coincidence. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. For regular listeners, you may have noticed we've gone through a rebranding exercise. This podcast was formerly the Dry Cleaner cast that is now Secrets and Spies. And for any new listeners, welcome to Secrets and Spies. I hope you enjoy this podcast and please do take a look through our back catalogue. We've got a whole wealth of interviews about terrorism, espionage and geopolitics. You've got four years worth of content if you're a new listener, so I hope you enjoy it. On today's podcast, I'm joined by author and counter-terrorism expert Fahana Kazi, and we discuss her new book, Secrets of the Kashmir Valley. Regular listeners may well remember Fahana. She joined us back in 2018, and we discussed her book, Invisible Martyrs. If you haven't heard that interview, I do highly recommend it, and I'll put a link to it in the notes of this episode. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting it by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You can subscribe by going to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies. Also, if you like the work that I'm doing on this podcast, you may enjoy my film, my short film, The Dry Cleaner. The Dry Cleaner is my first attempt at spy fiction, and it's now available on Amazon and iTunes. And if you're into social media, please connect with this podcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you go to Facebook, it's just www.facebook.com forward slash secrets and spies. And if you go to Twitter, it's just at secrets and spies. You'll tend to find me more on Twitter than Facebook. If you want to drop me a line, Twitter is probably the best place to find me. I hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you very much for listening. Take care. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Fahana, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's great to have you on. So just for the benefit of new listeners, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I am in the United States. I live right outside of Washington, D.C. I'm an American scholar, storyteller, and public speaker. And so currently, I teach classes on gender and conflict and women in terrorism at the George Washington University. I also train the U.S. military forces, and I've been doing that for probably over a decade. And my courses are related to, again, regional conflicts. Why do conflicts uh, continue? And so we have many of those conflicts in, in action today, and among them is Kashmir. So you've got a new book out called The Secrets of the Kashmir Valley. So can you talk to us about your connection to Kashmir and the kind of the origins of this book? Secrets of the Kashmir Valley, the special new edition, which is out now, is a story of people's survival, how people survive against all odds in what's called Indian occupied Kashmir. And the reason I use the word occupation is because for every eight civilians, there is an Indian armed soldier. There are about 900 Indian troops in a valley um, that sits between straddles between India and Pakistan, which are two nuclear armed states. And this has a long, complicated history. So in a nutshell, 1947, 
before India and Pakistan were even created. In fact, I did a show just recently, um, July 19th was a significant day in 1947 when the Kashmiri people voted to be part of Pakistan. Why? Because most of the Kashmiri people are Muslims demographically, mm. although you have Buddhists and Christians and Hindus, but they want to decide with the Muslim state. That was in July. August 14th, Pakistan's Independence Day, August 15th, India was created. And these two countries went to war over this territory, which is symbolic for both countries for various reasons. And then you had the first war between um, these states. And by early 1948, India went to the United Nations and said, we need you to intervene because they wanted Pakistani forces to leave the valley. And that is a significant event. And I say mm. this because that was the first UN resolution that declared a plebiscite. A plebiscite gives the Kashmiri people the right to self-determination. And since then, there have been 11 United Nations resolutions that state very clearly Kashmir is a disputed territory. And so what has happened over the last 73 years to this day, you see, in fact, an increased army presence within the Kashmir Valley. Pakistan owns about a third of the valley. Uh, Indian control is about two thirds. And the Indian control of the valley is where you see um, the sexual violence, you see torture, you see trauma, you see terrible life incidents. And so I always say that my books are not about the politics of war, but about the mm. people inside of them. Mm. Mm, the personal stories and do you have a do you have a connection to Kashmir yourself yes I do and and I suppose that my familial ties is the reason why mm. I ventured into this conflict um, it is really through my grandmother who was from the Kashmir Valley on the Indian side and after partition 1947 she and her family uh, her, she, they left um, and they migrated to Pakistan and you saw this on both sides of the border um, Muslims and Hindus and Christians having to mm. pick up and, and go to some people actually stayed in their homeland and others left. And so she told me stories about Kashmir. And so I grew up in the state of Texas, which is Southwest America. And I never heard of Kashmir in school, even in American university, but I heard it from my mother and through her childhood stories. And my mother joined the Pakistan army in the sixties. And that was something unusual for a young woman to do to join the armed forces, because by the sixties, there was another war between India and Pakistan after 17 days of war in uh, Pakistan lost. Uh, Pakistan doesn't have the majestic military might that India has. But my mother always said something to me. She said, Kashmir is worth fighting for. And as a child, I thought, what is this place? It sounds like a fairy tale. And then I started to do my research. And it was in 1895. And Sir Walter Lawrence had gone to Kashmir. And he said it would be difficult to describe the colors of the valley. And then in 1914, there was an American traveler who went to Kashmir. And he said, here we have the most splendid amphitheater in the world. And I thought this place is one of great beauty and immense tragedy. And so I wanted to discover it for myself. Mm. What is the situation in the area today? So today, in fact, it is um, what I call a twin lockdown. I was just mm. Uh, WhatsApp and social media with uh, what I call my family back in Kashmir on the Indian side. And uh, my contact told me that 15 young Kashmiri boys actually had died because of severe heart pain and anxiety because of the deepening level of frustration and disillusionment. So let me explain twin lockdown. Mm. The most significant day that you should remember that I want your listeners to know is August 5th, 2019. August 5th is only a few days away. What happened on August 5th is that the Indian government under Prime Minister Modi, which is a Hindu far-right 
um, some people call it a, a racist regime because it's, you know, spews anti-Muslim bigotry. But anyhow, mm. his regime changed the demographics of Kashmir and took away the Kashmir Valley's special status. So now Kashmiris who had prided themselves on their land and that they could use their own flag and they had um, rights to economic you know, opportunities, now that's taken away, taking away their special status, which was again promised to them um, mm -hmm. back in you know years ago, 1947, was a, a violation of human rights. And this is going to um, change the demographics because now a Muslim population is going to lose its identity. So this really is a threat to their very identity and lockdown occurred. This is the most extreme lockdown I have ever seen in any conflict. A communications lockdown where there was no internet and no phone service for about 54 days until um, right here in my own country in America, U.S. congressmen and women came together to pass a resolution to pressure India to uplift the lockdown. Um, and so now to this day, there's only a partial uplifting of that lockdown so that Kashmiris have access to some phone service, uh, a little bit of internet, but it's intermittent. But now, now I think about the pandemic, COVID COVID-19 is like a double whammy. It's a double threat. It has affected us all internationally. But think of a, a society that was already subjugated to what's called forced isolation uh, is what I call in my book a dehabilitating silence that has mental and psychological and physical consequences mm. and impact on the people. So then they're, they're locked in, um, you know, Prime Minister Imran Khan of Pakistan was here at the United Nations. He said, you've, you've locked them in cages like animals. The Indian famed author and activist Arundhati Roy, who's known for her book, The God of Small Things, said that India, when they did that on August 5th, created a giant prison. You've imprisoned now 8 million Kashmiri people and amassed 900,000 troops in a small territory. And now COVID-19 occurs. So yeah, by March of yeah. this year, now they can't even protest. Coming out into the streets to air their grievances was through protest. This is, by and large, a nonviolent people. Yes. Militancy exists. Yes, there was a suicide bombing just a few days ago against a Hindu temple. And the real fear is that if this lockdown continues and if the world community remains silent, that there is going to be growing radicalization among the mm. youth. Mm. What has been the reaction of the international community? Yeah, the international community has been wavering. I mean, I do think that there are good people everywhere. I had a show with British MPs, uh, Paul Bristol and Abzal Khan and others. And I really, it was a wonderful opportunity to engage the British MPs and others and to understand that there is growing sympathy and a sentiment inside the British parliament and even among the British people for their Kashmiris. Mm -hmm. So when you look at civil society across different Western countries, even uh, Clara Bidwell, who runs this organization out of Scotland, uh, Let Kashmir Decide, uh, so you have people all across the world who are speaking up, I say become a voice for change, and it is still at the local level. What we need is leadership. What we need is countries to come together, to use the United Nations, to go back to those um, uh, 11 resolutions that have mm. had no impact, no enforcement mechanism, uh, use the Security Council to force India to rethink its policy and its current strategy. What is their end game? What's India's end game with this lockdown? Why did they do it? And what do they think they're going to achieve? So that's an excellent question, Chris. And 
even though the events have been so shocking and so new to those of us who are watching what's mm. happening, and it certainly is at an pre- unprecedented level, um, this has been, many would argue, India's in-game all along, especially under mm. the uh, BJP party, the Hindu Nationalist Party under Prime Minister Modi. And I say that because if you look at his election campaign and you look at his mantra and you look at his policies under against the Muslims in the Gujarat region of India, you have seen this... Um, policy of subjugation you've against Muslims. You have seen the Hindu right gain more traction. In fact, I love what um, British MP Paul Bristol said when he was following events. He said, this is the end of secularism in India. The kind of India that was this beautiful country that had secular democratic values that we all love, the India that we wanted to go to because of Taj Mahal or uh, whatever reason, is starting to uh, dissipate. It's starting to disappear when you have far-right nationalist groups and not only threaten Muslims, but they also threaten Christians um, within their country. So this India has wanted to bring all of the states, because for India, this is Kashmir as a state, and bring the state under its autonomy, under its control. And this policy against Kashmir is is not... um, out of the ordinary. Um, Anandati Roy, in another great book that she wrote called Walking with the Comrades, has written about India's policy against the Naxalites and what India has done to subjugate that forest people. And so you see it also in Assam. You see it in different parts of India. In fact, some people don't realize that the largest number of insurgencies are incurring in India right now, mm. not anywhere mm. else in the world. It's right there in India. And Kashmir, mm. unfortunately, is is the brunt of it. Yeah. So what role have women played in this conflict and how do their roles differ from men? Thank you for asking me that, Chris, because at the university, I teach a class, Gender, Conflict and Security. And even though I'm a political scientist by training and mm. I study international affairs, what I, what I want my students and audiences to know is that Kashmir is a gendered war. And what I mean by that is when you say a conflict is a gendered war, that means that Women and men experience conflict and war in different ways. They have different roles. They have different responsibilities. I would like to say that even as far back as the 1930s Dogra movement before, uh, you know, before British colonialism and so forth, that Kashmiri women were on the streets protesting. And so Kashmiri women have always been active. Um, Mm. They have hurled their voices on the streets. They've been political participants. They have been. um, And yet on the other side, of course, you also what I I call the silent sufferers of war. Um, Mm. And so you have these two extremes. You have some women who have even been imprisoned. I met a woman who just came out of prison after having served five years under false terrorism charges. And these are women who, as she said to me, I'm married to the cause. You know, I'm married to the conflict, and so she remains single, but they're very strong political activists. And then the silent suffers a war of those who, uh, you know, have been um, have been shamed. They've been raped. There have been sexual violence cases um, that are so extreme that many young girls, women have lost their lives. Um, and then there are women that I've met, for example, the story of Mugli, which I'd like to share very quickly. Mm, please. Uh, yeah. A woman who spent 20 years looking for her son and never found him. And mm. she lost her son. She was a, a divorced woman, which is, again, uncommon in that traditional society. Um, but this woman just lost her son, who 
who was a math teacher, and he was going to his school um, during the 1990s, which was the height of the separatist movement. And many young men disappeared in that time, but she never gave up. She never lost hope. And I said to her, what would happen if you found your son? And she, if you discovered that he had passed, for example, she said, I would mm. hug his grave. And she never found her son and she died. And then I met so many women like that. And I call them the yeah. silent sufferers because the trauma that they endure is something we, I cannot, as a, as a woman, I call myself mm. the American outsider looking in. Very quickly, I met another woman who went mute because a 14-year-old boy, when he was coming back from Nepal, a Kashmiri boy was put in prison. And at that time, he was the youngest boy imprisoned. And when I looked at this mother and she went mute, I thought, and, and so I was speaking to her daughter, I thought, what kind of trauma you yeah. must have endured or faced that you can no longer use your voice. So when I came back to America and I wrote that first book, Secrets of the Kashmir Valley, I felt this enormous burden, in fact, I have to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. And then it was a sense of responsibility. And I said, no, I have to write. I have to be the voice for the voiceless. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I write. Well done for doing that. That's brilliant. Thank you. Well, on a... And a more darker question, I suppose. Why why is sexual based violence a sort of weapon of choice, especially for well, for male security forces? Yeah, and you know, this is such a, a tragedy because we see it all across the world. You see it in Iraq and mm. Syria and Sierra Leone and other Western mm. conflicts and mm. uh sexual violence again, this very um sense of, you know, uh patriarchy to the extreme that men violate a woman's most dignified um, aspect, which is which is her body. And, and in many societies that are uh, very traditional conservative societies, women who have experienced any kind of sexual violence become so ashamed. The taboo against them mm -hmm. is so great that they really go into hiding. And some of them actually commit suicide because they're so ashamed. And so I have met political activists in Kashmir who take on these cases. There was a, a very famous case of an eight-year-old girl and I saw her pictures. I couldn't meet her. Um, but her mother had been raped and then killed. And then the girl, um, same had happened to her. And what we really need is justice. And so it's one thing to be on the streets and protesting. But what these women are calling for, those who can speak for those who have been violated, is justice. A, you know, the international courts, um, actually, really, it should be the Indian justice system to to. Um, persecute the police officers or the army soldiers who have committed these crimes. And sometimes justice is, um, you know, comes late. And there are other cases where there is no justice. And this tragedy is when a life is lo lost, it's lost. Once you have committed that crime, you have left a woman or a girl scarred. And those are wounds that many of these girls and women cannot come out of. In fact, some of these girls really, as I said earlier, they go into hiding. They don't even, they can't even marry because think it's a conservative mm. society. You've been, you know, you've become impure. And so it has yeah. grave consequences. I, mean, I don't know if this is the situation in Kashmir, but I've read extreme stories where women have been forced to marry their rapists. And I just honestly can't get my head around it. It's, it's terrible. Yeah, it is a terrible thing. And, it is one of the most difficult, um, uh, you know, parts of the course that I teach on sexual violence. Mm -hmm. um, and this is where the international community needs to really come together and 
bring these perpetrators, um, you know, bring justice, because that's really all you can do. And the other thing that you can do is you can also provide a kind of some kind of normalcy for these girls. Um, what they really need is counseling. Um, they, you know, because they've been so scarred, not just physically, but it's emotional and it's mental. Mm. And mm. so I did meet a Kashmiri uh, psychiatrist and they're very rare in the Valley. You don't have, again, there's that taboo and many parts in, in the Muslim world at large, that if you're seeking counseling and, you know, psychiatry is not as commonplace as it is in Western countries. And so he was doing a wonderful job in trying to reach some of these girls and women. Mm. Um, but it is, it has to be two ways, you know, there has to be um, the girl and the woman also has to want to participate in those counseling sessions. So who are the most sort of visible women in Kashmir? Because women are taking a role in trying to sort of change things, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to tell you a case uh, so that I put it into context. Um, um, mm. In 2016, Burhan Wani, who had become a militant, uh, was killed by the Indian forces. And he was a young man, but he had joined uh, when he was 15 years old. And I yeah. mentioned that because he was so young and he was not your typical, when we think of a militant or a terrorist, we think of the mm -hmm. illiterate, the uneducated, the poor. No, he came from an affluent family. He had, and even in a, a situation in conflict, he had opportunities. And so, but mm -hmm. when he and his brother were beaten, then um, that enraged him as a child. And also he grew up, he grew up during this time of 2008 and 2010, where there were long, I mean, months of curfew, uh, many young boys were jailed or killed. And so that really shaped his psyche. And I mentioned him because when he was killed by the Indian forces in 2016, he became a hero. He became legendary. Mm -hmm. He was glorified as a martyr. And what happened, and the United Nations uh, submitted a report that documented this, you had more young women come mm -hmm. to the streets. Mm -hmm. Now you had young women who became also enraged, who became um, equally motivated to stand by their men and and mm. participate in mass protests. And I see this kind of activism among young women growing, it's rising. Um, and so, you know, the days of women just supporting their husbands, or you had just a few women who became political participants, I think that that's completely changing now. And of course now, because of the, the lockdown, we don't see these women, you don't even see these men right now, the voices that are being uh, heard for the Kashmir mm. cause are, outside of the valley. It's the diaspora community that's actually speaking up right now. Um, but if you were to give them an opportunity, you see, and I have met these young women even, you know, over a decade ago, these young girls are mm. taking part in, they have their own organizations, they have women's, you know, all women's organization, then, um, because again, it's still a, a conservative society. So while men applaud the efforts of women, um, it's still a, a male dominated society. Men respect their women. It is an honorable society. So men honor their women and they dignify the women who are participants. Um, but women, I think also, uh, there are those who feel comfortable within their all women's groups. Um, so however they participate, uh, these young women are certainly visible. And those who have the opportunity to go to the West and study, uh, they become scholars. In fact, I just want to say this, and most people don't realize that mm. in entire India, and India is a, a massive country, of course, over a billion people, um, but Kashmir is the most literate of all the states, and that includes men and women. So this is not a backwater state. This is a society where young men and young women are highly educated. I was one of my guides in the Kashmir Valley actually was a, a girl who was doing her PhD in political science. Mm. Um, and so I'm always um, 
this is such an admirable quality that young women become scholars, they become the peacemakers and the peace builders, and they become political activists. Um, and so um, it is not entirely a, you know, the male face of conflict. Yeah, yeah. Has the, so this book, has it changed your perspective or opinion on Kashmir? Absolutely. I tell people that, um, as I said earlier, I really had no intention of writing this book. When I was in Kashmir, I was there as an American traveler. I just wanted to see the people. Mm. I was in the Shikata boat gliding along the lake. Mm. I was just enjoying mm. the blue-green mountains and the, you know, the pristine gardens, peonies and sunflowers. Um, but it's when I stepped outside of the city and I went into the villages. And when I heard these horrendous stories, then I was shaken. And I thought, these are the secrets. Because so many Indian tourists, and even there were tourists from mm. Germany and other Western countries, mm. people come to Kashmir because of the beauty. And so as an American traveler um, back in the early 1900s who said, this is Wonderland. And I thought about that. When we hear Wonderland, I think of Alice in Wonderland, the classic you know, story. Mm -hmm. um, but Wonderland, because people actually compare Kashmir to Switzerland in terms of its beauty and majestic yeah. landscape. They say it's the Shangri-La of Asia. Um, but behind that landscape, behind the, the beauty of you know, geography, you have these dark stories the secrets that people tell, they don't tell, the, the secrets that people mm. hold or they die. Mm. And secrets even within a neighborhood because you don't want to reveal, uh, for example, if your son becomes, you know, joins a militant movement, for example, or, or anything like that. And so that, that did change me. I, I have been changed forever. I tell people that if I had never gone to Kashmir, I would have been a different woman. I would have just, you know, like you read, you read a book and it affects you. You see a movie and you, it changes you for that moment, but it doesn't change you for life. I have been changed for life. And so for the last 13 years now, I have feel that I've become an advocate for Kashmir. And I'm just one person. I'm just one woman. Mm. I admire the many people across the world who have been speaking up and doing this from the beginning. One random question came to my mind as you were describing Kashmir. Um, I'm a huge Anthony Bourdain fan. And, and um, you know, obviously he talks about the importance of food in a culture. Mm -hmm. Did any dishes, is, is food important in Kashmiri culture? And did any dishes sort of stand out on your trip or that bring back good memories? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Before I went to Kashmir, I didn't eat lamb. And after Kashmir now, I love lamb yeah. because I, I, so I was born in Pakistan and we don't eat lamb. Yeah. We eat goat meat or there's beef. And of course, then I was raised in Texas. And so this is cow country. And so when I was in Kashmir, I realized, and in many cultures, mm. of course, food brings people together and their wedding ceremonies are glamorous and glorious and people actually sit together and they eat mm. food and lamb and rice and these very aromatic dishes and they have their kebabs. I mean, most of us in the West, I think we're, we go to Middle Eastern restaurants, we go to Persian restaurants mm. and we know kebabs, but the Kashmiri kebabs are very different. It's a very different flavor. And I'll tell you what, because of saffron. Okay. Saffron, uh, which is a very expensive spice yeah. and it's really, saffron actually smells 
heavenly. It's divine. If you've ever smelled saffron, and saffron grows in Kashmir it, uh, in the month of October for only two weeks. Oh, and wow. it's only, yeah. only two weeks it's harvested. And then, of course, it's it's uh, world known because it's exported. But yeah. Kashmiris uh, have, I, the first, I'd never in my life had saffron tea uh, with pine nuts. Mm. And so it's something that I make at home now because I know how to. Or um, so I've learned how to make some of their dishes, and I what I find that's so beautiful about the Kashmiri people is their hospitality. Yeah. And not only for me, but other Western travelers who have come to Kashmir at a time when there's been conflict or any time there's um, a riot or protest. I, I know Western women who, and men who have been given uh, a safe haven in a Kashmiri mm. household and they mm. could stay there for months. So Kashmiris are very open, very loving people, and they're well, you know, known for their hospitality and their kind hearts. And this is a people of forbearance, a people of great patience and forbearance fortitude and their ability to withstand the lockdown today is is takes enormous strength and courage because I I know that right here in America with COVID-19 we had two months of lockdown but mm. I can still work I have internet access I, I can talk to you, Chris. Mm, mm. Um, we have still a normalcy. Yeah. Uh, we just wear our face masks and go out, but there's no normalcy there. And do you know even what's, and I'll tell you one last thing, mm, what's mm. so important about conflict is human security. People talk about the politics, but human security, is, and politics is one part of human security. Human security also means food security. Yeah. So imagine, Chris, that during the COVID-19 lockdown, and it was the month of Ramadan, so the month of fasting for Muslims, they didn't have meat. Mm. I mean, they couldn't even go to, the markets were closed. And the families that I were talking to, they had land, so they were relying on their vegetables. And those who had their own little farms were able to survive. And Kashmiris have, they keep rice uh, in their home for months. Um, you know, when I was going through COVID-19, it was it was really cute. A Kashmiri family said to me, uh, you must buy 40 pounds of rice and keep it in your home. Mm. And I thought, I don't even eat that much rice. You know, I can't, but they, but think about how this, this is a survival mechanism. Like, I mean, yeah. we, we laugh at this, mm. but this is mm. food security. This is human security. And I always say that human security is a freedom from fear and the pathway to peace. But you have a people now have been subjugated and are living, uh, quite frankly, in fear and, and, and in silence. Um, and so I think that it behooves us, for those of us who can speak, to raise awareness. So that is why I write. I tell people, um, you're not buying my book for profit. You're buying my book so I can support the Kashmiri women because I give back. You're buying my book so that you can spread awareness. You can share that book with five other people. Mm. You can become aware. Spread awareness to build understanding. That is why I write. And um, so I hope that we collectively can raise our voices so that we can let the world know what's really happening there. Yeah, definitely. Are there any other, are there any stories that you maybe haven't mentioned that you connected with? Yeah, there's a story that I give away for free. So if you come to my website, uh, www.farhanakazi.com, you will get this free chapter, yeah. which is in the book, but I give it to you away for free because I want to share this story. It's the most mm. startling. It's one of the most startling stories, and it's shocking, mm. especially for a Western audience. It's called Bomb Girl, mm. and it's a true story when I was walking down the dusty streets of Srinagar City, and a girl turned to me. She was taking me to her leader, her mm. female uh, political activist leader. And uh, I do have to, by the way, Chris, mask the names for security of course, please, so, yeah, yeah. to protect them. And so she turned to me, a very beautiful girl uh, with a kind of greenish gray eyes, and said, mm. I volunteered to be a suicide bomber. 
And can you imagine just having a casual conversation and someone says yeah. that to you? Yeah. And I was just completely shocked. First, I was thinking, why are you sharing this with me? Mm. Um, what do I do with this information? Mm. And mm. I discovered why later on. So I'm not going to reveal that no, to you. No, why no. People go to the website. Yeah. Um, but she said the men refused me. Mm. And all I could think in my mind is, okay, I'm a Muslim woman mm. and I'm very spiritual and I know that you are a young Muslim woman, but you are going to the university, you are studying. Uh, certainly there has to be something more that you can do than to mm. choose death over life. And that is the pivotal question that I ask when I even give terrorism workshops mm. to the U.S. military is ask the question, why? Mm. Why is this happening? Why does a young person want to end life? Is yeah. it because they, they, they're so in love with martyrdom? No. Um, she said to me, I, I want to call attention to with this conflict. The world is not mm. paying attention. Mm. I have to do something. She felt she was insignificant as a political activist. And she, the next day, I, I actually witnessed a protest and she was leading the protest, mm. uh, hurling her voice. Mm. Um, just a very powerful young woman. But she needed to feel that her life had meaning yeah. and it had purpose. And for her, it was to do something not for herself because in some, we don't think about this, but suicide itself is, is a very selfless. Some people say it's a selfish act mm. and I understand that, mm. but it can be a selfless act in this situation. She was doing it to improve the, you know, to change the status quo, to end Indian occupation, to call attention to the cause. And and for some women, it's also to be taken seriously by the men. They yeah. want to see that they are significant actors. And so uh, I understood all of that, but it was still very shocking. And I remember trying to speak with her, trying to kind of talk her out of it, trying to reason with her, trying to use Islam, as I know it as a religion of peace and mercy and compassion to talk to those aspects and to tell her that Kashmir is not known for violence. If you mm. look in the history of Kashmir, Kashmiris are not of violent people. Um, they use nonviolent means. And so to me, that was just a very startling example of what conflict does to a young person. And that years, uh, decades, and not even decades, but if you are a child of conflict, as these young people are, they grow up with this. This isn't just a trigger event, or it happened for five months. No, if this is your life every single day, this is your waking moment and the, the moment of occupation when you go to bed and you you endure months of curfew, um, then it has a deep mental psychological impact. And I think that we need to pay attention to this because mm. this is what feeds radicalization. This is how radicalization, this is the spark of militancy yeah. when you do not provide healthy options and opportunities for the youth. Mm. Well, this is it. I think you, you, what you were saying earlier about people wanting meaning and, and their life to be meaningful and significant. And I think that's such a key point and answers most of the issues around why people turn to violence. Absolutely, Chris. And, you know, so this is a, again, it's, it's a, a subject on its own, yeah. right? Um, radicalization and militancy or whatever term you want to use. Um, but I always say that we have to look at, I use my three C's formula, for example, and I don't want to be too academic, but three C's is very simple. And I created this framework after 20 years of working uh, in and out of the U.S. government because mm. I was in the U.S. government's counterterrorism center. And I began to think, you know, how do I help people understand? Because sometimes I'm invited by U.S. government agencies to explain this. And I say the three C's is culture, context, and capability. Mm. 
You have to, you know, what is culture? It's your values, your norms. What is context? It's the environment in which you were raised and how that affects you. And what is capability? Uh, not everyone within a conflict will choose violence. In fact, yeah. many people will choose peace. So then you have to understand, is there a personal component? And I have said, and I, I and this is documented in readings, um, that terrorism is personal. Mm. And so when I look at the cases of young people um, in different conflicts who were choosing the path of violence, and I've, I've even snuck inside jails to meet with, you know, so-called terrorist women, uh, you have to understand that the personal aspect is very powerful. Mm. Something happened to them that affected them. It could mm. be the loss of a male family member. Mm. It could be that they were traumatized at something happened to them personally, um, that they were attacked. Um, you know, we can call this, I don't know, PTSD uh, factor. Some psychologists like to look at that. Mm. But I just don't want to be mindful that there are a plethora of reasons that there's never one single motive. And I've even spoken to ex-terrorists mm. who now have been reformed. Mm. Uh, Mobin Sheikh is one of them, and he's in Canada, and he mm. speaks widely to the U.S. military and to the government. Mobin Sheikh and I, we both agree that it's a sense of belonging. You mm. want to belong to a cause, to a family. Mm. Um, and so I don't want to get into this because my my second book, Invisible Martyrs, touches on my counterterrorism yeah. work. And it's the true stories of girls and women who pursue the path of violence. But Kashmir, again, is very different. It's still a, a Kashmiris have a, they're known for the gift of tolerance. Mm. And so while there, it's a Muslim culture, uh, you also, there's Sikhs, there's Hindus, there's Buddhists, there are Christians. Uh, they have lived together peacefully. And so I remember one of the last chapters of my, my first book, mm. Secrets of the Valley, as I was leaving, I'm sitting at the airport with a Hindu woman. And this woman is so saddened, and we just share a conversation as we're waiting for the plane. And she says, I hate leaving. My husband's forcing me to leave yeah. because of the militancy. And she said, I have Muslim neighbors, and as Hindus and Muslims, we grew up together. And now, you know, she she's become fearful. And so she was really saddened by having to leave her homeland. And many Hindus have left um, southern Kashmir. They've gone up to north to Jammu. And, but, you know, so yes, there were attacks at one time, you know, between the different sects and the different religious groups. But by and large, it has been a very peaceful, tolerant society. And mm -hmm. I think we need to ask the difficult question is, why is India doing this? And when we get beyond that, how do we stop this? And I can tell you some countries believe that you can't negotiate with India. And so now this whole concept of bilateralism, mm -hmm. India, Pakistan should come to the table. That's not the answer. The answer is the Kashmiri people mm. need to be at the negotiating table. Yeah. What do you think the future holds for Kashmir? So that is the future, Chris. The mm. future is negotiation. The future is a political solution. Mm. Human security which is your personal security. Human security can only be implemented when there's a political resolution. Yeah. Um, so the world community, either through, you, through the United Nations or through the um, involvement and pressure by not just Western countries like US and UK, but also China mm. and Russia, you know, the entire conflict that was just recently happened between India and China and mm. in the Ladakh region. Uh, some analysts will argue that that's India's way of diverting attention, uh, uh, you know, and then of course, India knows, I think, that it has, it is no match, uh, for Chinese, um, you know, military. And so there needs to be enough international pressure mm. to convince 
Prime Minister Modi that, look, what is happening now is going to have grave consequences. And I just want to end with uh, what Prime Minister Imran Khan of Pakistan said at the UN nine months ago. He said, what we're not thinking about is what's going to happen when the curfew is lifted. What will happen when lockdown is, you know, is uplifted and people have full communications and people can go out. Do you think that people are going to re- resume their normal lives? Yeah. Um, we just saw, you know, suicide bombing last week. And suicide terrorism, by the way, is new for Kashmir. The attack that happened uh, last February, the suicide bombing by a Kashmiri boy that killed 42 Indian troopers, that attack happened after 30 years. Yeah. This is not common for Kashmir. This is not Iraq and Syria, you know. Kashmiris do not you know, strap on the bomb. But we saw an attack just a few days ago. So you have to ask yourself, is this the new norm? What is going to happen when curfew is lifted? If Modi, who says that the reason why he took away Kashmir's special status was to impl- was for uh, development and to promote infrastructure, well, then give the people that. Give the people their jobs and their incomes and their businesses and give the youth the right to go back to school and finish their university degrees. Bring that development into Kashmir so that people can truly feel that, yes, I am an Indian, I'm a Kashmiri, I I have the right to live in peace. Mm. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? Well, first, I just want to thank you again, Chris, for having me. I Just my last statement is this. Mm. You cannot silence a people forever. Mm. This silence uh, right now is uh, forced isolation, but you cannot silence them. And so the only way forward is inclusion. Mm. Bring the Kashmiri voices to the table uh, let's respect and honor their voices. Definitely. Well, thank you very much. For that. Where can listeners find out more about you, your work and your book? Thank you so much, Chris. So again, come to my website, uh, www.farhanakazi.com, my mm-hmm. full name, and sign up for the newsletter and you will get um, the free chapter and the books are available. So you can buy them um, on Amazon UK or you can get them directly from my shop. Thanks again. Thank you for your support and thank you for caring for Kashmir. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. 